Thank you, Pastor Joel. Well, yes, I am Pastor Jason. Um, I am our student ministries pastor here, if you didn't already know me. Um, and even back in high school, uh, despite this cool goatee and the job of being the student ministries pastor, underneath all of that, I am actually a full-blown nerd. Um, so those who do know me are like, yes, yes, Jason, we know. Uh, that was obvious. Um, and even back in high school, I was a full nerd. And if you don't believe me, this next sentence will prove it to you. However, among the people on the debate club, I wasn't even the smartest or the nerdiest. So uh, I, was, uh, I was the dumbest nerd in high school. Uh, my senior year, I was paired up with my friend Matt, who was one of the smartest guys on the debate club, way smarter than me. I was passionate, I was well-spoken, so my job was to get up and create well-found arguments to sound convincing to the judge. Uh, meanwhile, Matt would be the one who would come up with those arguments and hand them to me. Now, the problem with being so brilliant is that his brain was sometimes scrambling to figure out uh, how he could back up those arguments. For instance, I will never forget one of our prep times as we're preparing for me to go up. We're sitting there and we're scrambling through the amassed evidence and quotes that we had to try to find a piece of evidence that would back up this argument that Matt had just come up. Our prep time would be running out and he leaned over and he said to me, Jason, I know I read something about that. Just, just introduce the argument and we'll find something later to back it up. So off I went, up to the podium, ready to make an argument, despite not having even a single shred of evidence to back it up. Throughout my time in the big club at high school, not only did I discover that I was the least smart nerd, I learned the value of reliable sources. After all, there's only so far that elegant arguments or good quotes or passionate rhetoric can take you as a debate team. The value of reliable sources, of course, went on to serve me well in college as I had to write papers and back up my thoughts and papers with evidence and value where those quotes and where that evidence came from. And let's face it, in today's day and age, this has become something of super great importance to all of us, right? Because anyone, anywhere can write something and just post it on the internet. And as we all know, Abraham Lincoln said, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. I think I got that on the internet. Is that, is that true? Did he say that? We're bombarded with snake oil sales ads telling us that you can lose weight with this one weird trick. Or perhaps you've seen an article that gives you just enough of a story but then says, you won't believe what happens next. Or we see posts on the internet or on social media that make us wonder, in today's day and age, is there really a human behind that post, or is it just a clever artificial bot made to seem human? We must ask ourselves now more than ever before, is it true and is it reliable? This leads us to today's topic in our sermon, and that is, is the Bible reliable? This is a hefty topic, and it might feel a little academic, so I want to tell you what I'm hoping for you this morning. My hope is that this morning boosts your confidence in the scriptures and removes any obstacle that might be 
there for you to rely on the word of God in your life. So I want to start out by making this first point. There is something truly unique about the Bible. There is something truly unique about it among all other books. In fact, did you know this? It is the best-selling book of all time. Maybe that's not that impressive to you. You're like, well, it's been around for a long time. What difference does it make? However, have you considered that it's the best-selling book in spite of opposition, in spite of those who've tried to prevent others from reading it, in spite of people who've tried to wipe it off the face of the earth, and in spite of the Bible's exclusive claims to truth, almost seemingly to its own detriment, if you were trying to write the best-selling book of all time. It is truly amazing to me that it is not simply the best-selling religious book, but the best-selling book in any category of all time. Harry Rimmer, a pastor from Duluth, Minnesota, stated it this way, Men have died on the gallows for reading it and have been burned at the stake for owning it. Yet, in spite of the strongest forces that hell could unleash, and in the face of animosity of tyrants and despots, there are more Bibles in the earth today than there are copies of any other book written by the hand of men. Beyond surviving attack, the Bible has amazing agreement considering its diverse authorship. For instance, imagine if we took maybe just this few four or five rows section, but these, we took these people and we spread them out over 1,500 years across three different continents, and they'd write the majority of a, a single book together in a couple different languages. Over the course of 1,500 years, we wouldn't expect them to have much agreement, would we? Look around our country. We all live here, and there is a lot of disagreement everywhere. So how on earth could 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years, over three different continents, actually write this book with the amazing agreement that it has? That's truly unique, isn't it? It's impressive to me how the authors of the New Testament in particular verify their own writings by reminding their audience that they themselves were eyewitnesses to what they're writing about. In other circumstances, they point out the first-hand accounts that they consulted or that others could verify their writings by. Take, for instance, Paul's companion, Luke, who takes it upon himself to write, as he puts it, an orderly account. God uses him not only to write one of the most comprehensive gospels that we have, the Gospel of Luke, but also the early acts of the apostles and the church in a book we know as the book of Acts. Let's even take a look for a minute in 2 Peter chapter 1. And Peter himself will remind us that he and the other apostles are eyewitnesses. So 2 Peter chapter 1, near the end of your Bible, in verse 17. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice here that Peter is claiming to be an eyewitness of Jesus, and that nothing that was ever written in his account was trying to deceive and be clever or was trying to be uh, mythical or, or mysterious about Jesus, but they made known what they saw. And friends, <laughs> how could we not believe Peter? Uh, the accounts in the Gospels 
aren't exactly flattering to any of the founders of the church, to any of the apostles. Their accounts are filled with the sort of things that you and I would certainly edit out unless we were committed to telling the truth just as it happened, no matter how embarrassing. So when considering the reliability of the Bible, we might ask, is the Bible a human book or a divine book? Is the Bible a divine book or is it a human book? How can we tell? While a relative of yours or a coworker might argue that the scripture is just a human book, just written by people, there are both internal and external evidence that we should consider. Regarding to what the Bible itself claims, consider also 1 Peter chapter 1, just a few verses later, in verse 21, Peter says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter is claiming that none of the prophetic or from God words in Scripture that were proclaimed, us says the Lord, were ever born in the origins of human will. But people wrote the Scriptures as they were carried along and guided by God to write what they wrote. We might summarize what Peter is saying by saying that we believe the Bible is divinely inspired. Our church's own doctrinal statement even states it this way, We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. While the Bible does claim divine origin, it should be noted that there is often a unique voice to many of the authors. Check out, if you will, a little bit later, 2 Peter 3, verses 15 through 16. I'll summarize for you briefly. In this passage, Peter talks about how Paul is sometimes difficult to understand, and yet His writings are accepted by the church as being from God rather than from man. Rather than take this passage of what Peter says and assume that the Bible must therefore have just a human origin, this actually supports what we say we believed about the Bible being divinely inspired. You see, I think we often misunderstand the concept of divine inspiration because we anticipate that God wrote the Bible much like he wrote the Ten Commandments, Almost as if he was standing there right next to John saying, all right, now write for God. You're such a slow writer. So, no, don't write that part down. Loved the world. You get my point, right? Like the Ten Commandments, like he's dictating each and every single word. But actually, instead, God inspires the biblical authors and guides them to write what they wrote while allowing us to see the author's personalities oftentimes bleeding through the pages. Paul is organized. He writes like a lawyer. He's very well trained. Peter, a fisherman, he's a little all over the place. And you can see that coming through in their passages. Luke, a doctor, is often oddly obsessed with medical and the human anatomy aspects of things. So here we see that God did and truly inspired these biblical authors to write and guided them along without overwriting their personalities. Once the canon of scripture that we have today was finalized, to get to us today, it was copied and copied and copied and copied and eventually translated and, and translated again. And so that might lead us to wonder with so many copies, how do we know that 
the Bible we have today is what God intended to us to have. How do we know that we have the Bible as it was originally written and intended? We might question, therefore, is the Bible really reliable with so many people copying and copying and copying? Do we know it's accurate to what the original authors intended to write, especially now that it's in English? Let me say it this way. The historical evidence for the accuracy of the Bible is substantial. So buckle up. We've got a couple of things to get through. First, the number of manuscripts that helps us verify that we have the Bible as intended in its original Greek is quite impressive. There are now more than 5,600 ancient manuscripts of a Greek New Testament. And that's not even counting the Latin manuscripts. Let me tell you this. No other ancient document even comes close to having that many ancient manuscripts. The second most copied is Homer's Iliad with 643 manuscripts, all of which are incomplete. You'll see a rather uh, interesting slide I found illustrating that the New Testament has the most manuscripts. And it spoils my second point, which is the gap between the time of original writing and the earliest fragment that we have is the shortest, with the New Testament being, as you can see there, only 30 years. We have a fragment from the Gospel of John that's only 30 years from when it was originally written, which is crazy. Again, the most next historically viable, verifiable document, as you can see, is Homer's Iliad with 400 years between the original writing and the earliest manuscripts that we have. And in other classic works, as you can see, of Aristotle, Plato, the gap is often closer to 1,000 years between when they originally wrote and the earliest copy that we have today. Josh McDowell, author of such books as The Evidence That Demands a Verdict, states it better than I could by stating it this way. It cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance, the text of the Bible is certain, especially as the case with the New Testament, of early translations from it and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it's practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in one or another of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other book in the world. Maybe you're thinking yourself right now, well, oh, that's fine, Jason, great, we got lots of old documents of the Bible, but, 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 but all the copies, what about mistakes? Surely mistakes were made, right? There's errors. I've heard there's errors in the Bible. There's possibly, is it still possible that we don't have what the authors intended? Well, friends, that's an excellent question. James MacDonald, in his book, God Wrote a Book, gave an answer I found very helpful. He says the scribes who copied the Bible took great care in transmitting the text. They counted the words and even the letters to make sure that nothing was omitted. They even had proofreaders who checked their copy against a master copy. Despite their care, however, inadvertent mistakes sometimes crept into an individual text. Differences in pronunciation or spelling or misplaced words. Most of these variants are easily accounted for. In fact, less than 1% affects any doctrine of any kind in the New Testament are seriously debated, and none of these affect doctrine of the faith. So you'll see again on the screen the types of variants that we have. Most of them are spelling errors. I, I feel justified to make spelling errors all the time. They're, they're almost certainly not meaningful, and it's only like the smallest percent that are both meaningful and viable that we like have to have to have textual criticism, which we'll talk about in a minute to verify. 
In fact, as I was studying for this sermon just this past week, I learned something new. I was really excited. Uh, I learned that in Greek, unlike in English, the order of words matters significantly less. So whereas in English, if you or I were to state that John ate the bear, we'd be like, yeah, way to go, John. John one, bear zero. However, if you move just a few words in that sentence to the bear ate John, that means something totally different. Like, oof, I miss John. Those are very different meanings in English. However, in Greek, the order could accidentally get jumbled up and it would matter significantly less. The, the meaning would be preserved uh, even if it was incorrect grammar. Let's try to summarize. I'm going to try to summarize a very technical process that sounds really uh, strong called textual criticism in a really simple way. There should be an illustration up on the screen about textual criticism. So imagine in textual criticism works something like this. There's an original that we don't have. That's the top, the O. And then there are copies and copies and copies of copies that we do have. So, again, overly simplified, it works something like this. Let's say that intentionally or unintentionally, errors get introduced in a couple different spots. So there should be some different colors that start to appear. So, again, overly simplified textual criticism works something like this. We work backwards up through those errors to discover the origin of those errors, which you can see in some of those earliest copies where those errors might have originated from. And the mistakes that were maybe in unintentionally or you could even think intentionally put into the text can be cross-referenced with other copies that we do have to be able to recreate that original that we don't have. So again, it takes all these different copies of the scriptures, we're able to recreate the original that we don't have, what we suspect it must be, by able to cross-identify the different errors where they started from. And you'll even notice that within your Bibles, some of the things that appear, for instance, John chapter 8, uh, Jesus uh, stops a woman from getting stoned and then bends over and writes in sand. You'll notice that in most of your modern Bibles today, it'll actually note that, hey, earliest manuscripts don't contain this. That's one of the maybe most contested passages. So if you went home today and you tried to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a new doctrine for my faith around Jesus writing in sand, I might say, eh. It's not in the most original copies. Maybe don't do that. Yeah, you know, probably not a great idea. So that's helpful. I love that modern translators are giving us a little insider's perspective into how this process works. And that, I think, increases, that transparency increases our trust within the Bible. So even if what we have today is accurate to what is originally written, I thought I heard there were lots of contradictions. And in our fast-paced world where information doubles quicker and quicker and quicker, we might assume that the Bible got some details wrong. Dr. Gleason Archer, a learned man of over 30 languages, many being from the Old Testament time period, who taught over 30 years in the field of biblical criticism, states the following. As I have dealt with one apparent discrepancy after another and studied the alleged contradictions between the biblical record and the evidence of linguistics, archaeology, or science, my confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture has been repeatedly verified and strengthened by the discovery that almost every problem in Scripture that has ever been discovered by man from ancient times until now has been dealt with completely satisfactory manner by the biblical text itself or else by objective archaeological information. To zoom into an example that's a little older, but I think helps make this point, let's consider for a minute the Hittites. This is a people mentioned a number of times throughout the Old Testament. 
And this detail was, for a long while at least, used by scholars as a bit of a mockery of the Bible. They claimed there were no such people that they had found and that you couldn't take the Bible seriously because who are these Hittites? However, that was until archaeologists discovered multiple sources in archaeology referencing to the Hittites, a group of people that lived for over 1,200 years in the Middle East, showing that the Bible was right after all. You could spend a whole semester in seminary diving way deeper into these subjects, into the science and evidence behind the Bible's origins and transmission than I really have time to cover today. Time runs out for me to really explain to you how we got the canonization of the scriptures, but it's really fascinating, and I couldn't wait, wanted to almost tell you that as well. It might require a whole sermon to talk about the insurmountable odds of all the many prophecies within the Old Testament about the Messiah, Jesus, coming true in just one person. And I have only scratched the surface on details that help cement our belief that the scriptures are the inerrant words of God. I cannot even begin to get into historical and cultural finds that help parts of the scripture really come alive as we consider both chronological context as well as cultural context of a passage. So if you get nothing else out of today, I hope you'll take this home. You can trust that the Bible we have today is divinely inspired scriptures that God intended for us to have. We can trust that this English copy that we have is a well-intended version translated from Greek from the divinely inspired scriptures that God originally wrote. I truly believe that, that we can have confidence in this book. The Bible truly is a unique book, isn't it? One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, states the following about scriptures. In most parts of the Bible, everything is implicitly or explicitly introduced with, thus saith the Lord. It demands incessantly to be taken on its own terms. It will not continue to give literally delight for very long, except to those who go to it for something quite different. While the science and evidence that we've touched briefly on today behind the origins and the transmission of the Bible is impressive, friends, I have to confess something to you. It's actually not what I find so compelling about this book. The thing I find most impressive about this book is how it touches the hearts of people. What I find most inspirational about the Bible is how I see the eyes of students or friends light up as they read it and ask questions about it, oftentimes so many questions that I can barely keep up. The impact of the words of Jesus as I see people wrestle with his hard sayings, as I see people understand his words of compassion and love, the way the words in the Bible have impacted my life over the years is phenomenal. The way it has convicted me, the way it has comforted me, the way it has withstood my deepest doubts and my darkest frustrations, that is what I find so compelling about the Bible. I heard a long time ago a story that John MacArthur told, and it stuck with me for a long time. 
He tells a story of a man who was riddled with guilt, who came to see him and said, ah, this guilt won't go away. So MacArthur hands him a Bible and says, here, read this. I suggest you start with the Gospel of John. And while you're reading it, why don't you ask yourself, who is Jesus Christ? Supposedly, those who were in the room when this happened wondered if MacArthur made the right decision. Uh, Wouldn't the Bible just confuse this man? It seemed like the best way to deal with it. Well, a week later, the man came back, and he was ecstatic. He said, "Uh, I, I know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He died for our sins. He rose again. And if we repent of our sins and believe in him, we can be forgiven. John MacArthur said, That's not in the Gospel of John. I I know, as the man replied, I was so excited I read the book of Romans too. (laughs) The Bible can truly have a unique impact on the human soul that no other book can. And yet, unfortunately, for so many of us, for so many people in our world, it sits on our shelves or on our coffee tables or in some dusty corner unused. So my question today that I want to leave you with is, what will you do with this book? This book that we claim God divinely inspired, that has survived the test of time, survived the test of doubt, survived the greatest critics, survived those who would see it wiped off the face of the earth, simply begs the question, will you pick it up and will you read it?